the only way really that this industry is going to go to the next level is if the world understands what we're doing down here. Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. Sunny here. Welcome to episode 12 of My Way. This is part two of my conversation with fellow Graytonian and winemaker Sam O'Keefe. So if you haven't listened to episode 12, go back and have a listen to that. But before we get started, a couple of requests. First, if you like this podcast, please hit the subscribe button on iTunes or Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts. And secondly, scroll down to rate the podcast by clicking on the stars. The more ratings we get, the more visible we become and easier to find for others in the podcasting world. Thanks for listening and enjoy our conversation. In your experience, do you feel like wine making draws in a certain personality type? Do you find similarities with others in your industry? Yeah, without a doubt. I, it I mean, it'll sound silly and simple to say that that it's very cool, very simple people, but, you know, no one's in wine for the money. Um, You really have to be, and and I don't like to ever call it a lifestyle because that sounds, it sounds like us sitting here having a glass of wine on this veranda is a lifestyle. It's not that. The lifestyle is actually the process. We started pruning this week on on our youngest blocks, and my 2019 vintage began two days ago and I am fully invested in this harvest every day from bud burst through suckering through you know pruning suckering harvest making the wine bottling the wine selling the wine and then 10 years later explaining that vintage that harvest the weather conditions it is it is a life's work and you're not in it for the now and very few people could even though people dream about it, very few people could really live that uncertainty and that and that process because there's never you're, it's never over, it's never ended. Even with with other types of farming, you take your crop to the market, you sell it, and it's gone, and then you move on. Where with wine, that you will always have bottles, you'll always be going back to the vintage, you'll always be remembering the mistakes, the 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 successes. It, and, and it's something I think only in the last three, four years that I've really settled into is that this is all it. It's not about when the bottle sold and money's in your pocket. It's actually about enjoying the ride and being part of the process 100%. And so that that's a very special type of person, I think. Yeah. And that's, I think, also why generationally it's passed on down generations is because you really, it has to be in you to understand it. So interesting. I mean, you're, you're selling a product. You're selling a physical product that people can taste. Yeah. But I never thought about the fact that the end user, it's like you're sharing a book with them, but they're just reading the last page, mm. which is the product. Right. And with every bottle, with every season, there's a story. It's And, and the wine, the product is also constantly evolving and constantly changing in the bottle. Yeah. And 
I mean, from a from from a harsher point of view, I, I say that all the time when I'm out there in the world telling the story is that I will farm from now when I start pruning until the day this is harvested between February and April of next year. And no one will give me credit. No one will care. Right. No one will pat me on the back and say, well done. You have successfully gotten your crop to harvest. I then take the grapes without anyone noticing and I take them into my cellar and I then process them into wine. No one cares. And a year later, if I haven't screwed it up, then it goes into a bottle and it has a label put on it. And it then goes out into the world as a product, exactly what you say. And then someone is standing on the other side of the trestle table going, yeah, yeah, I don't know, you know. And it's like three years of my life. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, three years of not screwing it up. But it, is, it is like writing a book. And yeah, <laughs> and, and then I'm standing there, you know, somewhere in the world across a trestle table with a little old lady who's like, mm, yeah, yeah mm, and spits it into a can. And so you really have to be a certain, a special kind of person to, to enjoy that. Do you, at this point in the game, do you experience disappointment anymore when you feel like it's a good harvest and you've got something really worth sharing and somebody doesn't agree with you? There are lots of disappointments. I, and, and there's always people who don't understand your one. And that's, that's why you become very thick-skinned, because you have to truly believe in what you do. And you have to trust that enough people will understand it. This is the area where wine becomes like art because it's really in the eye of the beholder. It's about taste. You know, it's about that day. It's about how someone feels. It's about what they're eating. It's about the climate. It's frankly, even the barometric pressure affects the way that wine shows. And so again, just about that level of trust in the process and that it's not for everyone, that's okay. And someone will look you right in the eye and say, I don't get it, or worse. They could use words that are much more hurtful than that. And you're like, that's okay, because mm -hmm. I do, and and there are people who do. And yeah. so, you know, next. Yeah, <laughs> right. Moving um, on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's Obviously, there there's a, a side of the wine industry that's extraordinarily commercial, and they're basically making, like, tomato sauce or ketchup. And they're, they're more food scientists than they are farmers or winemakers. But that that's its own section of the wine industry that I really don't have any engagement with. And so those of us on my side of the wine industry, it's very much about the farm, the soil, the terroir, the passion, and being authentic and having your wine be authentic. And when something is authentic, it definitely is not for everyone. Where do you see yourself 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Um... Missing my kids. <laughs> I'm, I'm at a big turning point as a mom where my one son is now at boarding school and my second son is about to go to boarding school. And I think those very close to me are very worried <laughs> about, about this. Yeah, I, 10 to 20 years from now, I, I hope that they're off on their own adventure and in all of the character that I've instilled in them is is shining and I know I'm going to be so sad because I'll probably be very far away from wherever they settle mm. but as far as Lismore is concerned I I hope I'm still making wine every year I see myself probably spending half the year in Europe because my my biggest market is in Europe and so it would make sense for me to spend more time there and and sell Lismore wine and then spend the seasons here on the farm mm-hmm
So describe a typical day or week as a winemaker. I know this is very seasonally dependent. <laughs> yeah, and and as I said, it's also very it's quite diverse. I mean, we, we started pruning. We just laid down 30 tons of lime in the vineyards. We have wine from last season, 2017, that needs to be bottled. So I'm trying to logistically put all that together. We've got orders for wine that I still don't have the labels. And I have a new range coming out. And I actually was just saying this, that I love farming and I love making wine. And and this whole story of dry goods and the labels and the boxes and the capsules and it's making me crazy right now because it's slow, slow in the way that it moves. And, and so I'm trying to get all that together. I don't think anyone understands how, how many moving parts there are behind a bottle of wine and actually getting it all in a bottled packaged product that can then be loaded onto a ship and shipped overseas or be, you know, delivered to a restaurant in Cape town right now my average day is trying to make sure that 2019 season is going because we're we're getting the vineyards geared up to to go into next season and try to get 2017 the last of the 2017 wines in the bottle and and get to 2018 which is now in barrel and maturing um, make sure that it's safe and it's well on its way. As I bottle the Syrah from 2017, I'll then start looking at some of the whites to come out of barrel. Usually around August, September, um, I'll be looking at when it's time to take them to tank and get them ready to bottle. And in September, we have a global wine event that's coming to Cape Town. So I'll be then doing all that marketing. And then I go to Europe for three weeks in October to visit my markets and stand behind trestle tables all over Europe and and pour my wine for people. It's a very, very busy life, and it involves a lot of schleppy little things that I don't think people think about. It's a good thing about. Mm -hmm. What is your, what's your favorite part about being a winemaker? My favorite part about being a winemaker is actually when these grapes reveal themselves as the most amazing wine it's it is so every harvest you're so stressed I don't think anyone could ever understand how stressful harvest is and the wine can be completely screwed up during that time and you're not sure that you're that this is the year where it's all going to go wrong this is it and and it's going to be over after this year and and everything's going to be terrible and then you know a couple of weeks after everything is packed away and the cellar is clean and you go back into that cellar, like July now, and you taste through these barrels, and you just cannot believe that God has given you something so special. Mm. It's really the most extraordinary thing. Mm. And to be able to then go to my friends and taste through their barrels, and it is so crazy that the same grapes grown in different places can develop into these completely different wines that are so unique and so special in their own way and it it just makes me want to cry these months right now are the best part of what I do Mm -hmm. and then and then the second best part is being in Europe with all my other winemakers and being able to taste with them and learn from them and and share my stories and hear their stories from winemakers all over the world because we all pretty much experience a lot of the same challenges. And speaking of challenges, what are the challenges for you 
as a South African winemaker? We as South African winemakers right now, in the UK, South Africa is very hot, especially our premium wines. And um, and those of us who are in the premium sector are, are doing whatever we can to spread the word and, and share that news. And Europe also is looking to South Africa. I feel very proud and really excited to be a South African winemaker in 2018. And, and that tide turned four or five years ago, really. But it's it's really nice to be able to go to Europe and have people, first of all, know where South Africa is, be excited about what we're doing. And and I've seen that evolution in the last five years. I I spent May in the in the US for the first time in the trade and it's not like that. It wasn't as bad as I thought, but at the same time, they don't understand that South Africa is a serious wine producing country. They expect, you know, very cheap, inferior wines to be coming out of South Africa. And I think that we have a very long way to go. And in fact, um, Wine Advocate is the most prestigious wine publication and the most influential wine publication in the world. And, um, and Neil Martin, who tasted for South Africa, has moved on to another publication called Venice. And as of right now, we don't have a taster for for that publication, and it doesn't look like they're going to replace him. And it just shows you where South Africa sits. You know, we're mm. not important enough. How do we get the message out? How do we how do we get the rest of the world excited about us? You know, we we can sell wine to each other in South Africa, and of course we do. And it's an important market for all of us to have South Africans drinking our wine. And yet, the only way really that this industry is going to go to the next level is if the world understands what we're doing down here. And if the publications aren't covering it, we're going to have trouble. Mm -hmm. This episode of My Way has been brought to you by Soil. Whenever you're feeling stepped on, think of Soil. With the most impressive resume on the planet, Soil is nothing short of a life support system for all that grows in it and all the life that depends on that growth, including us. A teaspoon of soil contains billions of organisms and thousands of microbial species, most of which haven't yet been identified. In fact, this microbial diversity makes up one-third of the planet's diversity. This nutrient-wielding, diversity-yielding, water-containing, toxin-restraining skin of the Earth is part of the Fantastic Four, along with water, air, and sunlight that make life on Earth possible. A growth medium for everything from wine to rubber, this complex ecosystem is interconnected with everything we do. Your morning cup of tea or coffee, the newspaper you read, your supermarket, your antibiotics, your woolly socks, the cash in your pocket, the hundreds of raw materials that make up your car tires and smartphones, your glass of wine at the end of the day. Whatever you put in or on your body can be traced back to soil. Soil helping you get a life every day. The exciting thing is that we are flavor of the month in the UK and in Europe. And yet this was a very real reminder that we're just a small country at the bottom of Africa with a small production that the international publications have to decide that we're worth investing. Hmm. 
And That's interesting because I, I feel like in the U.S., especially in, in Texas, where I'm from, South African wine is definitely on the radar. But I also think it's, again, sort of power of suggestion and looking at the sections in places like Total Wine or these big wine stores. Does South Africa have its own section? And it does, definitely. It's mm-hmm. bigger than a lot of the other wine-producing countries. I hadn't even thought about South Africa still being a sort of a blip on the radar yeah, I mean, you know, I don't want to overblow it, but mm. you know, if it's a, it, it it makes the challenge harder. Yeah. And in Texas, the the sommeliers in Texas are actually very active, and the sommeliers in Texas are very clued into what is hip and happening in the rest of the world, and so they're very supportive of South Africa and our premium wines. Mm. But it's just one small portion of a three hundred and sixty million people country, right? It's a it's an interesting time to be a South African winemaker. It's an awesome time to be a South African winemaker in some ways, but it is going to be a continued intergenerational process. Until 1994, the world wasn't open to us at all. So if you think at how much the South African wine industry has accomplished in such a short period of time, and just in the last 10 years, let alone the last five years, it's at light speed. I have no doubt that five years from now, you won't even recognize where we were in 2018. But we need the help of the journalists. We need the media. We Mm. need all of them caring. And as I said, you know, in the UK, they really care about South Africa, but they have a historic connection to our Mm. country. And China and the US are massive wine buying populations. There's this big question of, is there a brand in South Africa that can produce volumes that could flood the US market of really high quality 90 point okay. wine. So that's and also the issue is just volume, volume, capacity. Those of us at the high end that are producing these high scoring, super premium wines produce very small volume. And Argentina and Chile and Australia have these brands that have been able to produce a very good, let's call it 89, 90 point wine, a million bottles, a hundred million bottles. I don't know what yeah. the volumes are. And they're able to flood the American grocery stores at $12 or right. I don't even know what the prices are. And that was the turning point for those countries. Being an American and being a female winemaker in South Africa, do either of those things affect no, of you? Course, no, I mean, both of them. I mean, there, there are very few female farmers in South Africa, full stop. There are very few females in the South African wine industry. There are even fewer who farm on their own and make wine. And when you say fewer, like what, what percentage would you say are I, female winemakers? I, I actually don't know what the percentage is. Okay. I, there, are more than, there are more than ever, without a doubt. I've been doing this 15 years now, and I'm very proud to say that I have women colleagues who are making seriously kick-ass wines and in a very high-profile way. And you didn't hear about any of them 10 years ago. But it's still rare yeah. to, to see women in this industry. And, and as I said, on the, at the farm side as well. And then being an American, obviously, I'm an outsider. I think you and I have both talked about this because no matter how long I'm in South Africa, I'll always be... A American. foreigner, yeah. yeah. I'll always be yeah. a foreigner to them. And and now when I go home, 
everyone sees me as a foreigner and they think I sound funny, even though in, in South Africa, I still right. sound very American. Right. So I've put myself in this situation as an outsider. And I've given a lot of thought to this recently because I've spoken about how I always saw myself trudging through Africa in the middle of nowhere. And yet I, obviously I assumed I'd be an outsider if I did that. And yet I didn't really un understand what that would mean. And if I evaluate my life where it is today, I've achieved things that I never would have dreamed of. It's been incredible how well things have gone in the last few years. Yeah. And yet I'm very much an outsider. I'm an outsider yeah. within my industry. I'm an outsider in my community because I'm an American woman alone mm -hmm. with two kids. Even geographically, yeah, you're an outsider of right. the village That's because right. you don't live right in the village. That's right. Yeah. It was an interesting life journey, you know, mm. because obviously with each step, it was it was deliberate. But actually, the unintended consequence of that mm -hmm. is I put myself in a situation that until the day I die, I will forever be very different from everyone else. You right. Know? Yeah. So we got to fly that flag. Yeah, exactly. My, <laughs> now, now I just need to embrace it. I've done some soul searching about yeah. it. And, yeah. And now, you know, it is what it is. And I think you and I have also talked about... The, you know, the fine line between loneliness and solitude and how to identify when you're experiencing each feeling. Right. I think you and I have in common that we are always going to be sort of an outlier of a type of person. And so with that are many fantastic things, but there is also loneliness, which can be a gift, and solitude, which can also be a gift. So... Yeah. It's just one of those things. What do you feel like you're good at? Rolling with it. it that, that's probably the single most important thing that's gotten me to where I am today. Mm -hmm. It's just rolling with it. Mm -hmm. so. And what do you wish you were better at? Admin. <laughs> I'm really bad. Really bad. Like, I hate it. It's, I don't know anybody who likes admin. No, like my accountant. I mean, like I think, you know, there's like a whole industry of people who who yeah. wake up in the morning to like take all the little crumpled papers and figure them out. I think once I get into it, I like admin, but I, I just have such a hard time getting into it and committing to saying, okay, here's the admin of my life. I will come up with a hundred yep. things to do before I have to do it. And I'm lucky because you have chosen a life path where there is a hundred things that you can that do. I can do exactly and um one of the leaders of my industry is a man called Peter Finlayson and he once said to me many many years ago with these icy blue eyes that he has and he said Samantha your business will be made or broken on paperwork <sighs> and I of course rolled the eyes and was like oh please you know and I promise you I think of it Every single day. And the older I get, the more I realize that almost every business, all of my friends are entrepreneurs in completely diverse industries, and all businesses are made or broken on paperwork. Yep. And it's so unglamorous, and nobody wants to hear about it. And we've taken a story about like going your own way, and we've ended up at paperwork. <laughs> right, right. But ultimately, it's 
Well, it's like doing foundation work on your house. It adds value to your house, but nobody's going to come in and say, oh my gosh, this foundation work is amazing. (laughs) They're going to look at the new sink you put in the bathroom or whatever. Well, And when when small businesses fail, no one says, oh, I bet you it's because they weren't sitting up late at night doing their paperwork. They blame a whole bunch of other character flaws. Like, oh, it was the product. Yeah, but it it very much could be that it's as simple as Mm -hmm. the fact that the person just couldn't be bothered getting their paperwork together. Yeah. So anyway, so that's a boring answer, but it's very authentic I, I really wish I cared more about it earlier on I think my business would be in a much stronger position but that's okay luckily it all worked out I, I've rolled with it and somehow it all, it all worked out right so what is one thing about yourself that you think would surprise others I think most of the people who know me especially my colleagues would be surprised at how much I I need to be alone because I'm a very complex person and when I'm out there in the world my my agent in South Africa calls me Sparkle Lily and I'm very much this outgoing extrovert chatty American with the big smile and and lots of friends and I know everyone and and I love that it is what has given me so much joy in my life and yet I come back to the top of this hill and I just need to be alone and have some quiet time. Mm. And and I think people would never believe that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what kind of downtime do you have and what do you like to do when you have downtime? I find I don't have a lot of downtime lately at this stage of my life. And if I'm not busy being a mom, I'm busy with the hundred aspects of my business. I and And I think it's just the byproduct of being an entrepreneur. I think it's especially so when you're a mom because the couple of hours that you take on a Wednesday afternoon to be at a hockey game, you then make up on Sunday. So I I used to mountain bike a lot. I actually don't. I'm completely immersed in wine. Luckily, I'm passionate about wine. I love it. I, I love learning about it. As I said, it's history and geography and geology and a whole bunch of crazy things that, that most people don't care about. But I'm completely consumed. So if you could clone yourself and have that clone do whatever you wanted it to do, what would you have it do? It would be visiting my colleagues who are the best at what they do in Europe and learning as much as I could. And then that clone would come back and share with me <laughs> and so that we could <laughs> we could then implement it. Yeah. It, I'm, I mean, I'm that all consumed right now. That That is really, truly what I would do with the clone. If you had the power to solve only one problem in the world, what would it be? Poverty. Why poverty? Because it's the it's the root of everything. It's mm. the root of um, starvation and malnourishment, but it's also the root of you know lack of education, of frustration, of rage, of insecurity. It sounds like such a cliche answer, and yet it is the root of so much of of the world's problems. Mm. Of it, yeah. Even even if you look at environmental issues, when, when someone is poor and hungry and uneducated, you can't expect them to prioritize environmental issues. You yeah. know, it, it, you, you need to take care of people's basic needs. It's, it's the yeah. pyramid. And obviously we're sitting in South Africa, so we have a front row experience with it every single day. I have a staff that I work with every day. What scares you? Um, my children 
being so far away that I don't have a place in their life. Mm. That's a tough one. <laughs> so, especially when I've settled so far away from everything. Yeah. yeah. And I've raised them with the whole map as, as their potential playground, you know, whatever they, they, they can go anywhere, do anything. And that scares me. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with me. It was great to talk with a fellow American. <laughs> it is great to talk to a fellow American. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining me for the second half of my conversation with winemaker Samantha O'Keefe. One of my favorite things she said was, quote, it's about enjoying the ride and being a part of the process 100%. I'm sure this is true in winemaking as it is in life. Don't forget to follow at Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram for photos and updates associated with our podcasts. In the meantime, if you have any ideas for folks we should have on the show, email us at podcastcowgirl at gmail.com. We have another podcast in the works right now, so stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening and see you next time.